millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, I had to learn it the hard way. You come to a point when you work in a startup where you realize that you sort of lose track of why you started. When Cambridge Analytica got the Trump contract, things changed because up until that point, we were still a small agency and we were completely unknown to the world. When the company actually crashed, I had a whole personal life crisis that had built up. And I think this was just a tipping point for me to, to see my whole safety net security, everything just being pulled away. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. I will be sitting down for a series of candid conversations with some of the most prominent startup operators out there. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. My name is Tal Shmueli and I will be your host. Alexander Wixel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, one of our most exciting guests for this season in London. And to start unfolding your amazingness, let's start with who you are, what do you do, and why do you the do The three it? hardest questions in life, isn't it? Um, so my name is Alexandra. Uh, I am a creative communications consultant. I help companies and people reimagine their vision and tell awesome stories. I do it because I've been through quite a crazy journey myself. And I realized that the most important thing, whether you're an owner of a company or a person, the story you tell yourself and others is really what shapes your reality. So if you want to grow an amazing brand, your vision and the story that you tell your customers is what they're going to buy, not your product. So... I want to help as many people as possible who are doing good things for the world to tell those incredible stories. Do you find that people are struggling to come up with purposeful stories? No, actually, there is a whole abundance of purpose stories out there. Um, I think the problem is really to tell authentic stories. And most of those stories, they're born out of what you believe. So a lot of people sort of rush in as, as it's very fashionable today to tell stories of purpose, of impact, of, you know, changing the world, a lot of people are focusing on the, the way they're telling the story rather than actually doing what they're doing. So I try really to help my clients go back and look at their actions and their behaviors before they start telling that story. Because once you have that nailed down and you understand why you're doing what you're doing, 
the story unfolds in a very authentic way. And that is what people buy. That's what they love. When do we stop being authentic? When we tell a story? When do we stop being authentic? So oftentimes, the stories that are powerful are the stories of vision. So where are we going? We want to get people excited to come along on the journey. And there is a very fine line between saying, this is what we want to do, and this is what we're actually doing. I think when you start to tell stories of what you're doing, but you are doing things that are not that, and you're getting you know, in a different direction to get quick wins, to gain more customers, you're sort of putting yourself on a path where you're going to go in two different directions pretty quickly. So your story is going to run in one direction and your actions in the other. And that is when it gets slippery. I think it's very, very common that we set out in a direction and, you know, we, we get lost on the way. But the key is not to, you know, punish ourselves for that, but rather say, okay, this is where we are right now. If we want to move forward with intention and with our purpose, we have to rethink how we're doing things. The biggest benefit is that you, when you become really clear on where you're going and why you're doing what you're doing, Everybody else can tap into one part of that. People can really relate. They can say, you know, wow, like I love that journey you're on. I want to partake in that. If you don't have a clear vision and a clear purpose, you oftentimes end up in circles where you do things as an ad hoc. You don't have a very clear direction. Your customers are confused because you launch new products all the time. And in today's um, online world, you can really do anything. If you have an audience, you can launch whatever you want. But the key is, why are you doing it? Are you doing it to make more money? If that's the case, people usually see through that and they don't get very excited about it. But if you're selling, you know, something that you are really passionate about, they tend to come along if they're passionate about it too. Before we go into your professional CV, let's talk a bit about the personal one because you were born in Sweden in Stockholm. But your all of your all of your studies had been about the Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> so what does a a girl in Stockholm have to do with that part of the world? And how does your intellectual curiosity evolve into a profession? That's a that's a really good question, actually. Um one that I've asked myself many times as well. Okay. <laughs> I know we've talked about it before. So now I want to get now we now we're coming to an answer. Exactly. Well, so I was born to um, Swedish Ethiopian parents. My grandfather is Ethiopian. Him and my grandmother are the first Swedish Ethiopian marriage in the world, which has provided me with a whole different lens than most. How did your grandparents meet? Uh, it's a beautiful story, actually. My grandfather was over in Sweden 60 years ago now um, on a training for the Air Force. And he met my grandmother. They fell in love. She went back to Ethiopia with him wow. and uh, raised three kids. And uh, Kids were raised in Sweden? In Ethiopia, in Addis. So my mom is half Swedish, half Ethiopian. She was born and raised in Ethiopia. They were always back and forth. But came to Sweden when she was 13 to live uh, permanently. So it, it was, it's, it's quite an interesting journey, but it really brought me into um, the world with, with a whole different perspective than most people growing up in Sweden. And at the time I was growing up, there was not a lot of mixed uh, kids. I grew up in a very 
white community. Homogenous. Very homogenous and still is today, but with a lot more exciting influence and mixes. You see uh, the immigration has, has really spiced things up in the best possible way. But at the time, it was very culturally um, one. There was only one lens to look at things. And I never took that for granted. I never sort of accepted that as the status quo. So having grown up in Sweden, um, I went to, you know, one of the best schools you can go to from an educational perspective. And I really had an incredible uh, upbringing, but I was I was curious uh, about the world. And I really I had this sort of uh, perspective of being mixed. And I was I guess now in hindsight, when I think about it, I was always seeking some kind of explanation or some kind of belonging, which took me out in the world. And I moved to the US first. I lived in Boston for a while and then I moved to London. I did my studies here. And then after that, I was living all over like Africa, Middle East, the US. And one of my favorite countries, and it will always be a favorite country living in, um, is Tunisia. I was there for more than a year after the revolution, the Arab Spring. And I lived and I worked there and I have now a beautiful extended Tunisian family of uh, people that are really connected with on a deep level. Um, how long have you been in London now? On and off for 10 years. So. Do you feel like you've slowed down your career trajectory a little bit or at least um, less, uh, less shifty? I have, yes, in a way. I mean, um, my career trajectory has really been like a phoenix situation I, I i dive into something i go all in and then i burn and then i rise again so having started in the development field and working on the ground the grassroots level around communications i transitioned into marketing and data working for cambridge analytica cambridge analytica um, started off as a as a data analytics company it was associated with Facebook, a big scandal, political controversies. Um, there's plenty of material for people who want to dig deep. Mm. But for Alexander Wixel of January 2017, mm. Cambridge Analytica was a promising startup to work for. I mean, actually taking it even further back, when I started at Cambridge Analytica, we were, it was not even Cambridge Analytica, it was SEL Group, and it was a small comms agency that was founded by two, like an ex sachi sachi you know, storyteller. Um, so it wasn't at all what it came to be known for. It was just a very traditional sort of madman kind of agency working around the world on traditional comms contract. It was when um, the former CEO, Alexander Nix, discovered the power of data that, um, the company became Cambridge Analytica and set up the operations in the U.S. So having seen that growth from being a small agency of less than 20 people and being part of building it into a 140 people almost company, going in a very unconventional way, because oftentimes these startups, they start with an idea, they raise money, they go out and they do it. Here it, was, it came with a whole inherited uh, legacy of a company. That is also part of the problem with the stories that have been told about the company today, because it goes back to 89. So you have so many different paths of that company before it even became Cambridge Analytica. So what were you hired to do for SEL Group? 
I was actually starting as an intern right after my uh, right after my masters. So I began working with them for the summer while I was writing my masters, and then I think. I've had as many roles in that company as you can possibly have. As you know, with any startup, you do everything. I became a project coordinator after that, and then a project manager, and then a director, and then a solution architect, and just let's, you do everything. So let's slow down. What does a project coordinator um, for a data analytics company, what does that mean? What is a project? So what we did... Back in the days when I was a coordinator, we would get a traditional contract with a I don't know, company or a government where we were set out to do market research to understand the problem they were facing. We would do data analytics and then we would come up with a strategy to engage with that audience. So what tools did you have at your disposal as a project coordinator? Who are you working with? So I was working under the project manager and at that time we were like, I don't know, four, there were like three or four project managers. So as a coordinator, I was supporting them writing proposals, writing reports, but pretty quickly in that role, I, and because of the growth, I became a project manager straight away. So it was a question of uh, managing, coordinating resources, uh, everything from the creative designers to the data scientists to, um, yeah, to the salespeople. So when you get assigned a project, you you become responsible for making that project come alive, basically. How many people were in the company when you joined? We were under 20 people. Under 20. So you were working pretty close with senior management. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And now you've moved one step ahead. You're no longer an intern or project coordinator. You're a project manager. Mm. What type of projects were you working on? So one of my first projects, and this is the process in which I became a project manager, when I was still a coordinator, I was assigned to one of the biggest research projects that was ever conducted in Saudi Arabia at the time in collaboration with McKinsey and BCG. So they were working on the 2030 vision and uh, reshaping the vision for the whole country. And we were tasked to go in and look at uh, the population and understand the pains, the aspirations, behaviors, attitudes around this shift. And we were a small team from Cambridge and I was assigned to initially go and support one of the managers of the project uh, due to unforeseen circumstances had to jump off. So I got allocated a lot more responsibility very quickly and that included managing the research. We went around the whole country to every sort of city, town, village, north, south, west, east, and we conducted focus groups, we conducted quant surveys. So from intern to working at an international level, yeah. um, how long has it been? How long are you in the company now? Mm, eight months. Eight months. That's Not a, even. That's a huge gap to fill in a very <laughs> short period of time. Yeah. How, was, did you, how did you step up to fill those shoes? It was a question of really... It's interesting when you ask that, because in hindsight, I don't know what the fuck I was doing. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, how on earth did I manage to do this? I was I was literally running focus groups with, with the military in Saudi Arabia in a language that I didn't know. Super maturistic environment <laughs> where women are second class citizens still and, and, and you're just stepping up to take on this big role and speak about, uh, talk about imposter syndrome. Yeah. 
No, it was, you know, when you're in the situation, and, I, and this is for everything in life, you just do what you have to do. And the other option you have is to jump off and say, no, I don't want to do this. But like I was, you know, I was in my zone. I loved it. Any any challenge, the bigger it is, the more fun it is. So it was a question of working with the resources that I had at hand and then identify what other resources I needed and collaborate with the people on the ground. So let's fast forward another level. And now you've completed this project. You've established yourself in the company. You've proven you, you can step up and take on more responsibility. And you go back to Cambridge. What's happening next? By the time I came back, uh, the company had really become Cambridge Analytica. And we had started branching into data analytics, hired a lot more data scientists. So I naturally merged into the what became the commercial side of the business, where we went out and we used a lot of the same techniques and tools to uh, help companies get more customers. What did Cambridge Analytica back then promised its customers? What was the, the selling proposition? Um, what we were doing at the time was really providing a lot broader um, and a lot more comprehensive view of audiences out there. So we were using data from different sources, commercial data, public data, and we also used our own behavioral science techniques to, to run surveys. And then, you know, combine all of them and extrapolate it across the population to run a communications. So basically taking data from all sorts of sources, social media, publicly available data, data that the company has gathered and trying to connect the dots. Yeah, exactly. So it was it was really an experiment because no one, and, and this is a common experiment in the industry. A lot of people think that Cambridge was the only one doing it, but all the big agencies were experimenting with the same thing. Um, we were all trying to harvest the data that was out there to better understand people. And um, a lot of that was failed attempts, which was never really communicated. A failed attempt would be we're giving recommendations that don't really work, our algorithm doesn't really predict exactly. behavior. Yeah, so um, the sort of big five um, personality algorithms that uh, Cambridge became very known for was a work in progress. It was by no means something completed and it worked in certain client contexts, but not others. So when you do it for, you know, uh, an outreach campaign, it is a lot more difficult to gain accuracy than it is to do an internal communication piece for already existing customers where you can actually understand behaviors with a lot more accurate data than you can with Facebook data. And what's the um, what's the five personality thing you just mentioned? Uh, so it's called the ocean system, and it's basically a way of understanding your personality traits and how agreeable you are, uh, how much you have in terms of locus of control, how much you feel like you are in charge of your own life. And a lot of marketing... Um, sort of agencies use this model to understand people beyond their preferences and sort of consumer behaviors. So I want to make sure I understand. Um, so the company would uh, take data, aggregate it, process it, and then the output would be a personality type. So you would segment the, uh, the people in that, uh, in that uh, target audience into different personalities and then you would create campaigns uh, that match this person's personality. Exactly. Okay. That was that was the intent 
the experiment of it all uh, was a lot more challenging. So it worked when, uh, when the campaign was based on internal data. I, was, I know this is a controversial claim. A lot of people say it works when you run large campaigns and match it with Facebook audiences as well. I think it comes down to A-B testing. You have to, to really see whether it works in that context. And anyone who tells you that they can guarantee a behavioral personality campaign approach will uh, probably oversell. When did a commercially-minded organization became political? It actually happened the other way around. So they were using a lot of these. Um, so with the U.S. elections, for example, you had in America, you have an opt-out culture, which means that this big, these big companies can collect a lot of data. And unless you're opting out of it, that data is being resold. And uh, a lot of companies buy that data to then run huge commercial campaigns. What we did back in the days in the political space was basically taking the public political data out there and combining it with the commercial data to get a whole new view of the political uh, electorate. So back then, you realized you're already working for a company who is there, who's promoting or helping politicians. Did you understand it was different than the company you've joined? Yeah, it changed a lot throughout uh, throughout the process and what I always find fascinating which hasn't really been brought out in the media coverage is the culture that existed on the ground so we were really a team of young very uh, very ambitious and very curious people coming from the startup world coming from the tech world looking to really um, you know create something new I think the legacy and part of the management of the company came from a different world. And seeing these clashes between the two was always a fascinating process. It was not seamless at all. It was sort of old ways of doing things versus new ways of doing things. Yeah, you're saying fascinating and you're saying clashes. What are other words to describe what it felt like working there at the time? I mean, it was really... I would never have stayed as long as I stayed if it wasn't for the people there. So a lot of the scientists, data scientists, a lot of the psychologists that I work mm -hmm. with were absolutely brilliant people, really incredible. And it became like a family uh, because we worked super late some nights and, you know, everybody was, we were there together, which also was incredible to see during the fall of the company. So when it went bankrupt and, and that whole clash, we all became a lot closer and there for each other. When did things start to take a turn for the worst? What happened? I think it was really when Cambridge Analytica got the Trump contract that things changed. Because up until that point, we were still a small agency and we were completely unknown to the world. No one knew about us. So we were doing our thing and the Trump contract, which I think no one in the company expected us to win, came about. And it really challenged a lot of people there, me included. I was, I was very hesitant to continue working for the company because I didn't Politically. support, yeah, I didn't support um, the political ideology. But 
it started growing so fast after that. And everyone from every side of the political spectrum, commercial, wanted to understand what we were doing and they wanted a piece of it. So the company just grew too fast for what it had the capacity to handle. And yeah, in, in like a year's time, we tripled in size. How did you learn that you won the Trump contract? Um, I think it was, it, we had uh, at the time a big issue of communication. There was no sort of central communication up in the company. So most of the things spread through word of mouth. Someone had told someone who told someone. And one day we were all called into a meeting and it was just, you know, they told us right there and then. And quite a few people left actually straight away, especially on the data side, because they realized that they were going to be pulled in. Yeah, that's immediately, you know, you're in, you're in a potential conflict with your morals. Yeah, exactly. I decided I was about to quit. Mm-hmm. And then I had a conversation with... Uh, someone very close to me who said, listen, you're very hungry and very ambitious. Wherever you go, if you go into another big company, there are going to be challenges morally for you there as well. And what you can do is take charge of what you participate in and how you contribute. So I took a conscious decision to stay because it was an exciting time of growth, but I didn't want anything to do with the campaign. I wanted to work on the European side. I wanted to stay with the commercial I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So now the company is tripling its size in over a year. You get pulled into all these meetings that are happening. All sorts of famous people start being in touch. You're mm-hmm. getting emails from the chambers of the most important people, powerful people in the mm-hmm. world. Um, what does that feel like? Feeling that success, but also being conflicted by it. I think in hindsight, um, I, I was ignoring my own um, well-being for the sake of that growth. I was so caught up and so excited in the growth that was happening 
that I didn't see how it impacted myself. I was working for a company that was had incredible people, but were going in a direction that I didn't really uh, subscribe to. When is enough is enough? When do you know that you have to stop ignoring your well-being and change the course of direction? I mean, I had to learn it the hard way. Um, because when the company actually crashed, I had a whole personal life crisis that had built up. And I think this was just a tipping point for me to, to see my whole safety net security, everything just being pulled away. But I saw the warning signs a lot earlier than that. I was working very in a very unhealthy way. I was working long hours. I was not taking care of myself. I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. Um, and I think you come to a point uh, when you work in a startup where you realize that you sort of lose track of why you started. And you are just in this sort of wheel of doing for the sake of doing. You say you've put a lot of pressure on yourself. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? A lot of self-critique, a lot of unnecessary uh, high bars that are mentally and physically unattainable. So I'm never going to stop being ambitious and hungry and you know being out there but I think there is a different approach to it and what I've learned from my own sort of crash was that you can do all of this but you can do it with compassion and kindness for yourself and you can set the bar up here but you can also celebrate every little victory up until that bar. The uh, sunset of Cambridge Analytica when did you realize it starts to uh, it starts to go belly up? When did I start realizing? So in March, about March 26, I think, we I started feeling something was wrong in the company. There was a lot of meetings behind closed doors. And being in the position I was at the time, I was sort of tapped into a lot of different teams. So I had quite a good overview of the vibe and the environment of the company. So this two weeks running up to a meeting where basically the CEO called us in, Alexander said, listen, there's going to be a bit of a bump in media. And we are going to have some uh, negative press coming out, but don't worry about it. It's not going to be the end of the world. We're going to go through it like everything else. And it was not the first time that we had had bad media, but this time, uh, Channel 4 and uh, The Guardian had basically spent about a year, I think, researching the case of Cambridge Analytica um, as an entry point into what was happening in the world with Trump and Brexit and all of it, and decided to publish a undercover um, video of uh, a scheme that they had set up, basically catching Nick's and the CEO and the head of the political section as well, basically being very, very inappropriate on the video. And inappropriate for me, professionally or? Uh, both, yeah. So they were promising, they were talking the big game, promising a lot of you know things that were not uh, at all morally correct. Um, and for me, 
up until that point, I had sort of, I'd heard all the bad negative press and, you know, I sort of felt bad about it, but I didn't, it didn't really get to the core of me. Because it's easy to justify knowing the people that you work with. Exactly. I knew that the people I worked with were really good people. They had really good moral compass. And we had actually declined a lot of, me and my team, a lot of contracts that we didn't at all, um, ideologically or, or morally, um, sort of support. So, but when this video came out, there was something shifted within me. I felt let down i felt like you know someone had cheated on me in a relationship that was the kind of feeling that i can describe and i was really really disappointed and very hurt because i felt like i had been lied to i had put in so much time and effort into building this company and quite frankly this irresponsible behavior became um yeah so everybody suffered from it. So that was really when it shifted. And, and when I saw that uh, undercover video, uh, I just knew, I knew deep down, this, is, this, this time the company is not going to survive. And then it unleashed a three months process of going up and down and uh, going through a phase of, you know, trying to take part of the offering and rebranding it under a new name and just the whole crisis management was just it was like taking three MBAs in, in three months time wow. it was fascinating and actually I, I decided to stay until the very end even though I was approached by a lot of companies and interviewing things I wanted to start stay until the end because I realized that was my only shot uh, up until this point to really live what a lot of MBAs teach you as case yeah. studies and actually live it on a very global level is the company losing employees then yeah people were dropping off one after the other we had just gotten uh, a new hire when this happened who was a brilliant woman she she was the closest thing i had to an incredible mentor in the company um she pulled me over and she said listen this is not going anywhere and i realized pretty quickly like we were totally on the same page but she also said you know it's a great learning opportunities so with her a lot of others left and especially what was really interesting actually to see a lot of people that left were the ones that um, were seeking safe employment and comfort rather than the curiosity of the unknown being able to uh, see what it's like when a company is closing shop mm. it's not easy it's tough even with all the conflict and moral ambiguity mm. and publicity, what was the last week like, the last day? <laughs> it was almost like one of those movies, like the doomsday kind of movies, the calm before the storm. They had called us all into a meeting that they kept postponing for 10 hours maybe. So it was like sitting around waiting and we were all there together. We had, at the time, we had a great chat going on on Slack where people had like basically gone into full humor mode to deal with the chaos that we were experiencing. No work was being done at that point. Nothing. I mean, really, people, the last sort of 
three, four weeks, no one was really doing anything. It was like a slow, painful death. And just, it's almost like, you know, the end of a civilization, like people are dropping. And at that point, the offices had been raided. They had taken a lot of uh, the computers and stuff for investigation. You were there for, the, for when the offices were being raided? Yeah, so we, it was one evening. So we came back one morning and everything was just turned upside down. And uh, papers were everywhere and the laptops were taken wow. and everything. So people could literally not do work and we at that point we had I mean we actually had quite a few clients left but um, yeah people had left clients had left but the last day I remember we were sitting in um, in one of the rooms on the beanbags and we were all sort of just laughing uh, about the situation and waiting for this you know verdict what's going to happen I think there was something beautiful about the community uh, and how everybody was there for each other, even though we knew nothing of what was going to happen. A lot of people had gotten new jobs already or some people hadn't. So we were sort of joking about it. And I, and I remember it being really, you know, sad, but also very close knitted community at the end. So what was the meeting like? It was short. It was emotional. Uh, we had the CEO calling him from New York saying he was sort of reading out the statement uh, that his lawyers had drafted wow. uh, saying, you know, thank you so much for your service. Goodbye. Uh, wish you all the best for the future. We can save the company kind of thing. And some people started crying. Some people, you know, expected it. But it was just this really weird feeling that I think only people who have seen the closure of a company and been there until the very last day can relate to it. Who was the most senior person on site in the room where you were at? Wow. I mean, most of the senior people at that point had either uh, been forced to leave or I think it was um, the head of data science who had become the interim uh, CEO at the point. What do you do? Meeting is ended. You clock out and you go home. We had a last supper <laughs> together. Um, and everybody stayed. I mean, we stayed in touch. We kept checking up on each other. I went to meet up with a dear friend of mine. We had lunch and we were sort of just talking about the irony of the whole situation and it felt still felt surreal it was like coming out of a movie theater you know you 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 watch the curtains close and then you leave the movie theater and you're like okay now what yeah detachment it happened yeah. but it hadn't happened to you just yet yeah it happened in the world it's official it's closed it's signed off exactly well you felt like you were tainted like your cv was tainted by the experience in cable Analytica. you know a lot of people have asked me this and I've never experienced um, a sort of, how can I say this? People have questioned it a lot, but it's usually with curiosity. And when they realize that you are uh, not part of the senior management and you did not make this happen, they actually see um, the sort of asset in it and the opportunity to learn from it. And I experienced a lot more positive response. And then I'm sure there's a lot of people who, like, didn't get back to me because they thought, you know, one thing or another. But 
not in my face. I didn't experience someone uh, being very judgmental about it. What advice would you give to people who have experienced a professional crisis that leaked into an identity crisis? How would you help them manage that particular time of uncertainty and unease? I think what really helped me, and this was uh, probably not an intentional step, but rebuilding your own mindset and your own narrative before you have anything, before you have a new idea, before you have a new company to work for, is so much more rewarding. Because if you jump into something new straight away and you start building that, you're going to start tying your own personal narrative to that. If you just sit and you sit with the pain, you sit with the uncomfortable situation you're in, you're going to start to feel a different kind of strength within you, knowing that whatever you go through and you're going to, I mean, this is not the only fall I'm going to have in my life. There's, I'm very prone to risk, so there's going to be more. But knowing that you have that foundation in you, no matter what, attachment you have in life whether it's a relationship or a job or a house or money or things that foundation is what you are gonna live with the rest of your life and sometimes the most profound parts of a narrative is the space in between the stories so it's that pause it's the silence when you don't rush into it job interview or to a new business plan or to a new activity it's the space where you just sit with yourself with your own soul with your own identity and start to question what that is Alexandra this has been one hell of a ride personally and professionally mm. and intellectually where can people go to learn more about you and the work you do Follow me on my website, it's tribe3.co, or go to my Instagram, which is my personal handle of ALWXL. You can get in touch with me. I'm super happy to, you know, help people who have or are going through a similar process. Um, so just send me a DM uh, or email me if you're interested to work with me professionally. It's alexandra at tribe3.co. Alexandra, thank you so much for your honesty, for your openness, for your, uh, for your bravery in, in, in seeing the full, uh, the full circle of that crazy story. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and I wish you all the best. Thank Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.